for April 29th, 2013. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 252. Perhaps, but not today. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm Matthew Rather from Los Angeles, California, and this is the best of both podcasts. I don't know what the other podcast is, but this is the best of of this one and the other one. Uh, The unnamed podcast, The Undiscovered Country. No, sorry, I'm into the Star Trek movies, and and they're a mixed bag at best. We are here to talk about uh, The Best of Both Worlds, part one and two, which were recently screened on the big screen uh, all over the country. Um, as part of a, uh, what, a large promotion, really a kind of giant infomercial for a Blu-ray set that uh, <laughs> CBS Home Entertainment wants you to buy. We're talking about Star Trek here, <laughs> so we're clear. <laughs> Matt, I don't believe you specified in your opening spiel. Yeah, it's kind, of my, it's kind of my shtick now. Can we get any endorsement from CBS? Because you're, you're doing a great job selling <laughs> the Blu-ray. <laughs> Drink, because the special guest has spoken before being introduced in the roll call. This is Ben Krinsky, our special guest, uh, a friend of ours, and a subject matter expert, one of the world's foremost experts on all things Star Trek, uh, including Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, Season 3, Greatest of Star Trek Seasons, and uh, Best of Both Worlds, Part 1 and 2. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be here. All right, so uh, panel, in honor of our topic tonight, which, yes, is, is Star Trek, if you're going to nail me down like that, Mark. Um, yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> well, the next generation, to be even more specific. Yeah. Uh, the question is, what two worlds would you like to make the best of? Drink, because first in the alphabet is Matthew Belinky. No, that's a joke. That's a callback to last week when I got that wrong the other way. It's Peter Fenzel, so drink anyway. (laughs) Yeah, and you can also drink because Peter Fenzel's a little hoarse coming back from a weekend of traveling. (laughs) Although I did not have time after I got off the plane to make my uh, Yogi Honey Lemon Throat Comfort Tea, the official tea of Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, which I really wish. (laughs) (laughs) Go go easier on yourself. You're, You're a big horse. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know what that's a reference to, but I, and I don't know whether to be flattered, but I think I'm just going to let it go. Um, all right. Uh, wait, is it flattering? Is it flattering to be called a big horse? Yes, absolutely. You're not, it's, it's diminishing to call yourself a little horse. That's true. You know? I wasn't even going to do that until you brought it up. Though. Don't, don't, bait it, don't bait it yourself. <laughs> Indeed. So I'm going to go to I, I just this vision I have of a Harry Turtledove-esque historical sci-fi book called World, War One slash World, War Two, in which a, uh, a time-traveling and dimensional-traveling adventurer is able to pass through portals that go between the alternate worlds of War One and War Two, where World War One and World War Two are happening, like in the real world uh and like and it can be sort of like the light world and the dark world in zelda link to the past where like you have to go back and do something in world war one and it'll change like the position of a door in world war two so you can go through it maybe it would work better as a, as a video game that you can do yeah and like you can uh you can like re we can you can move uh, artillery nests right and uh the artillery nests will blow up different houses so like maybe there's an item in a house but the house gets destroyed in like the battle of the Somme. so you have to go back to the Somme and like convince the <laughs> British generals to change their 
attack plan so that the house isn't destroyed so you can go back to it in World War II and like pick up the special Uzi that's been left by like the uh, the time traveling. Um, Oh gosh! What Israeli Mossad agents? Because yeah, Uzi Ma- is Mossad. Israeli. I was like, we're just looking for. I was reaching for the word Mossad, uh, and it was it was on the tip of my tongue. So it's but so yeah. it's uh, it's Bill and Ted's excellent war venture, right? Uh, I mean, I suppose I, I don't. I mean, I mean, in the sense that you could you'd use Bill and Ted rules for time travel, where you could like tell yourself that you would go do something and then do it later or like where you could affect things in the present by going back into the past uh but that's sort of standard in video games well it's common in video games too because you move yeah there's only so many ways you can move blocks or like move mirrors to turn light on things right uh definitely but i'm trying to think of what what other sort of sci-fi property most would most remind me of more than bill and ted's where like somebody is passing through two different kinds of continuities it's kind of a it's kind of a back to the future two situation sort of (laughs) Right, where he's like he's traveling back to 1955, but he's sort of doing it in two different contexts at the same time. Ah, but that's different too. I'll think on it. I'll think about it and come back to it. Uh, but yeah, world. I like I like any anything that can be changed in meaning drastically by adding co- uh, punctuation is something worth doing. So I'm going to go with a world comma war one and world comma <laughs> war two. Excellent, Mark Lee next in the alphabet. Okay, for inspiration, I turned to everyone's favorite research tool, Google, and typed in world of into Google. And of course, World of Warcraft is the, uh, the first result. Um, so I went with that, and I combined it with one of the other suggested searches for World of and Google, which is World of Watches. Uh, world of Watches is not surprisingly like a, a website where you can buy watches. They sell all manner of timepieces that go on the wrist. Um, and so the combination of these two, right, is that basically it's a massively multiplayer online role-playing game, MMORPG, where you acquire watches. Right. So like the beginning, you're grinding. Right. You're just doing very menial tasks repetitively. So this is like, I don't know, like <laughs> taking like a, a, a file and just uh, rubbing it down on a huge block of aluminum to get it into the right shape of like a piece of a watch. And you have to keep doing that over and over again. Eventually, you graduate into uh, like running a mine, running a steel, uh, an iron mine or an aluminum mine to, you know, to, to bring metals out of the earth. And then, like, finally, the boss battles or, like, you, you get a bunch of your friends and you go up against, um, like, some really rich dude who has an awesome Rolex. And you kill the guy and you take his Rolex. That's World of Watches and World of Warcraft. So is it World of, World of Watchcraft or World of Warwatch? <laughs> watch, of, like- watch of Worldcraft? Watch of Worldcraft is a good one. <laughs> it's like SimEarth. Yeah. <laughs> uh richard rosenberg is with us hey welcome back to the podcast sir it's always a pleasure to have you on thanks i'm not sure who that is though richard rosenbaum is with us there you go For why'd you kick sake. richard rosenberg off the podcast it was really <laughs> yeah well, it was going geez. to be it was going to be uh too confusing i'm i'm yeah. already barely able to cope with what i have in front of me <laughs> all right um, okay, the two worlds of which I would like the best. I'm going to go with Ghost World, the uh, Daniel Klaus graphic novel, which was turned into a movie by Terry Zweigoff, and Super Mario World. I think that uh, the combination of those two would be the best of all possible worlds. Think about Mario and Luigi kind of wandering around aimlessly, Figuring out how to how to grow up, how to deal with the issues of being alive, being in the Mushroom Kingdom, how to really get that princess to pay attention to them. 
<laughs> would, would Steve Buscemi be in it, or would he be replaced by a giant turtle? Or would Steve perhaps... Buscemi would Steve Buscemi would play Peach? Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> that's all I got. <laughs> would it be? It would be like a gritty reboot of the the Super Mario franchise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we could see if we can get Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo back <laughs> to reprise their roles. And yeah, or get, what is, it? is it Thora Birch and Scarlett Johansson? Is that's that who, it? That yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they yeah. could play Mario and Luigi, or they could play yep. Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo playing Mario. <laughs> right, right, right. Or Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo could play Thora Birch and and Scarlett Johansson. Uh, and Scarlett Johansson. And there's probably they probably would get would have to pay them a lot less than to get the actual ones at these at this point. So wait, so which one is which? Does does Bob Hoskins play Scarlett Johansson or does Bob Hoskins play Thora Birch? And I think Bob that, Hoskins has to play Thora Birch. So does Bob Hoskins Thora Birch play Mario or Luigi? Because I, I would Thora say Birch Mario. Is the Mario. So you think Thora Birch is the Mario of Ghost World? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, don't get the taxonomy right. Is there like sort of t- dominant? I mean, obviously. Do no, you yeah. Have to- <laughs> sure, Thora Birch definitely is the Mario of, of Ghost World. <laughs> I am with you on that. All right, uh, I guess it's, it's me. Uh, my, my two choices are um, the James Bond film, the Pierce Brosnan James Bond film, The World is Not Enough, and uh, the Thomas Friedman uh, nonfiction book, The World is Flat. And, <laughs> and it's a it's a thriller uh about globalization about how <laughs> uh about how um you know companies are it's a it's a sinister tale in, involving companies uh outsourcing their business functions to the third world and how you know i don't know a penny of every transaction is being uh siphoned off to um it's uh, being siphoned off to, you know, fund a master plan that involves space lasers or, you know, I don't know, Denise Richards. Is the world not, not enough? Is that one Denise Richards? No, that's... Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, Christmas Jones. Yes. The world is yes. not en- enough. Yeah. Uh, the nuclear physicist. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm totally imagining, like, GE or some other major industrial corporation, like, looking to outsource its labor even farther than it already does, and thus, like, attaching a whole bunch of rockets to, like, an Indonesian island, and then, like, trying to launch the island into orbit so you that it can become... save money that way. <laughs> yeah, well, that way it'll be, yeah, because it'll be flat. And it won't. <laughs> the world will be flat. It's it's a cost cutting measure. <laughs> That's how it works. It will be flat, and it won't be enough. So it needs to be bigger. Um, it's like uh, yeah, it's like Flatland, basically, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know. I heard a rumor there was going to be a movie about a, a Flatland movie with Martin Sheen at one point. Right? That was going to happen. Did that ever happen? I don't even know. Ugh. The world is not enough because I don't know. it doesn't it would, have Martin Sheen in it in yeah. Flatland. <laughs> I, guess, I guess Charlie Sheen would be a more interesting person in, in Flatland, right? Which character in Flatland would Charlie Sheen play and which character in Flatland would Martin Sheen play? Well, Martin Sheen, for goodness sakes, Martin Sheen is like a circle. And, uh, you know, Charlie Sheen is a triangle at best. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is a like a you know very steep isosceles triangle at best. By the way, uh, Martin Sheen starring in Flatland the movie came out in 2007. <laughs> what? <laughs> it also stars Kristen oh. Bell. <laughs> Wow. Kristen Bell plays Hex, the Hexagon. <laughs> and Martin wow. Sheen plays Arthur Square. <laughs> to be clear, it was an animated short, right? Yeah, it's an animated short that played it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it wasn't the tentpole action, two-hour action movie that it really deserves to be. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I think that, that it's about time for the, for the 3D re-release. Yeah. By the way, people are... <laughs> Flatland is like... And by the way, there is a 3D re-release that they're working on in IMAX. It was supposed to come out last year, and maybe it did, maybe it didn't. Flatland yeah. is like a forced-to-the-point-of-awkward sort of science fiction, like speculative math fiction novel i believe about the experience of a point that moves into two dimensions or something like that right or no it's a hexagon uh who who they basically shapes discovering how they project each other into different sorts of dimensional space and they're all personified as like sort of stock characters in kind of a stodgy victorian narrative about like the unknown uh but do you think that characterizes flatland accurately <laughs> um, yeah yeah <laughs> There's a sphere, right? It's a circle, and it keeps getting bigger and smaller based on the cross-section that's passing through their two-dimensional universe. And this is, like, a major, the major plot point of the whole thing. Well, um, yeah, but there's also there's – a, there's a character. It's, it's like uh, Jodie Foster in Contact, right, to the extent that there is a character who gets kind of taken outside of Flatland, a character from Flatland, a two-dimensional yeah. shape, who then looks down upon the map of Flatland stretching out in two dimensions, you know, like a plane in all directions – and uh, then comes back, and the camera records uh, only only static, but it records three hours of it. <laughs> I call that the Mufasa moment of Flatland. Because everything the light touches is his kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so, uh, finally, pride of place in the question always goes to... Well, they have the option. Uh, it always goes to the special guest. Though, this is not a special guest. This is an honored guest, we decided before. No. Because we are, we are honored to have him. And he no. does us honor by appearing on uh, no. appearing on the show, being one of the world's foremost experts the in Star Trek. The greatest expert in the world on Star Trek ever. If he says anything even slightly displeasing, eviscerate him. In the God. I was trying so hard to uh, have a touch of humility. But I was honored to be here. I'm so happy that you guys invited me on. But, you wouldn't, um, wouldn't be able to sport the beard that you sport if you didn't have <laughs> you had that spot of humility. You're a proud man, like Riker. Anyway, continue. Uh, well, oh, sir, honored, so honored guest, if you would deign to tell us, uh, if you wish, <laughs> what, uh, well, what two worlds would you like to reconcile and make the most of? Most of? Well, this might be a little bit of a cop-out, but um, the first thing that actually popped in my head was just to go the sort of with the Dr. Pangloss joke, that I would like to unite the, the best of all possible worlds and nowhere else. <laughs> so, like, oh, so, like, the wait, best wait, of wait, all wait, possible wait. worlds. That's, like, a pretty funny joke, right? Because like, <laughs> the only world that can exist is the best of all possible worlds. That's what right. Lee is talking about, that Pangloss exactly. is satirized in Candide. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but, <laughs> so I mean, you can't combine the best of all possible worlds with any other worlds. It's, the right. only it's, it's sort of logically excluded. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. But 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 the less the less glib answer, I guess, if if uh, if I may, was just um, I, I suppose it's hard to call it the world of Star Trek. I was trying to sort of generate a segue into the main part of the show. I guess it's mostly most often called the universe, the Star Trek universe, or the universe of Star Trek. But um, I, I would I would like to see the world of Star Trek and the world of video games, the best of those two worlds 
together because it's been a long time since I've played any video game, much less a Star Trek-themed one. But uh, my memory is that they were not very good Star Trek-themed video games. So uh, I, I would, I would. There are precious few video games that are based on sort of prominent media properties that, that do well, I guess. So yeah. Be nice if- There's at least a couple of good ones, like Starfleet Academy for PC or whatever was probably pretty yeah. good. Yeah. I mean, I had one that was the last game that I got for my old 386 was a Star Trek game, and it came on 11 three-and-a-quarter three floppy disks. <laughs> <laughs> and I tried to install it for two days, and I could never get it. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, I'm, I'm remembering something because I think I had it. Was there a... Star Trek The Next Generation VHS video game where I, I mean and I mean that literally not as in controllers where you play on a console, but where you actually put a video cassette into the thing, you play uh segments of that video cassette and you get cards that give you clues. And there is Star Trek The Next Generation uh video uh board game, the Klingon Challenge, which I do which I did own and kept in your apartment for some time. <laughs> um where you can watch, yeah, where you can watch uh it's um oh gosh, what's his name? It's um, uh, Mark O'Reilly. Oh yeah, as the uh guy who played Gowron. As, as Gowron. As, oh yeah, was, yeah, with the was, widest was, eyes. Yeah. He was playing another Star Trek character. I think his name was something like Captain Kavak or something. Um, and yeah, you had to. He had taken over the bridge of the Enterprise, and you had to. Uh, I don't know. Somehow overthrow him and take back the ship. I don't <laughs> think this is the first time we've talked about this board game that I've no. never actually played a game of. Despite yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you've mentioned it before, Benzel. Oh yes, like, indeed, indeed. So like, I, I, I really I linear chips and move through spaces. <laughs> I, okay, so so the one I guess I never played it either, though I I knew of its existence. The one I played was based on the uh, the like Asimovian iRobot universe, where like there were spacers and like non spacers or something, and it had the you got clues to solve the mystery on uh, on cards, and. Um, the 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 thing I found neatest about it, it's probably telling that this is the thing I remember, that every clue was keyed to a certain power of two, so that when you added up all the, the values of your cards, um, they would give a unique number, and that unique number was keyed to a page in the answer book to tell you if you solved the mystery right, so that like every combina- every particular combination of clues would add up to a particular... Uh, you see what I'm saying would add up to a particular number based on what bit you were flipping in the uh, in the sequence, and that was that's the coolest, really cool. Yeah, yeah that was I the like coolest that. thing about it. That was probably the most inventive thing about it too. Rob, Robert O'Reilly, that's the guy. Um, Sorry. Yeah, and I actually I looked him up on IMDb on my recent um, my recent rewatching of all of Star Trek: The Next Generation on Netflix, and. Uh, and man, does he do some acting with a capital H in uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation? Um, like when the young, uh, you know, when Lursa and Batur try to to take over, he opens his eyes wide when when they say uh, when the the young Klingon Buck they get to uh, to you know carry water for them says the Duras family will one day rule the Empire. He opens his eyes wide and says perhaps, but not. <laughs> Today. 
<laughs> and he sh- like he shows his teeth and he shows the whites of his eyes. It's like a summer stock production of Othello up in that piece. Yeah, it's yeah, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but uh, we'll get to Star Trek in just a second. First of all, I want to uh, I want to plug our ongoing um, our ongoing series in. Uh, in uh, our YouTube channel about Eurovision 2013, (laughs) come hell or high water, we will review 39 individual tracks uh, that are entries in Eurovision. Um, The latest video was one I posted about uh, Sweden and Switzerland. Um, The the takeaway is that Sweden is a little pitchy and Switzerland has epic controversy because apparently they sent a Salvation Army band to do the job job of a rock band at Eurovision, um, though they wrote one hell of a catchy song. Uh, Marx is coming up. Mark, you want to say something about uh, what's in store for us um, next week when you, uh, when you release your video? Sure. Uh, Ireland and Montenegro both have dubstep. And there's um, <laughs> a mysterious, unexplained Breaking Bad references. So a lot to sink your teeth into. <laughs> Stay tuned. Awesome. Ireland, uh, Mark does something I did. I, I thought the video of, um, of uh, not Greece, Cyprus's entry, which is in Greek, called Anme Timase, if you remember me, uh, would look good with a horror movie soundtrack. And indeed, it was, it was quite compelling. Um, Mark does a little soundtrack recontextualization in his video that you will not want to miss. Uh, so, uh, that's coming out, uh, later this week. Let's see. So you can, oh, uh, you can get Such for us on, on YouTube or just click through the links on any of the, uh, on any of the videos that are the posts on overthinking it. And Hey, would it kill you to subscribe to that channel and get our numbers up so that, you know, we can start running those 30 second pre-roll ads and ruin your experience for the, the <laughs> sake of like, you know, 45 cents CPM. Yeah, in economics, we call that an incentive. <laughs> keep right. Keep overthinking it unpopular. Look, so that we someday, have- <laughs> Matt, someday overthinking it is going to be a major YouTube partner that has a major revenue stream for generating content that's viewed all over the world regularly by a, a valued uh, subscriber base of hundreds of thousands. But not today. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Pete, speak, speaking of your little horse, uh, the <laughs> <laughs> you came uh, you came uh, on a plane. You took a plane flight to make this podcast. Wh- where were you before? Uh, where did you wake up this morning, and why were you in that place? Well, I had the, the great pleasure this weekend of reading. Uh, that's the sort of, I guess, read, being a reader is the title. I like to think of it as a host or judge at the uh, National Championship of the National History Bee and the National History Bowl, which were happening in Washington, D.C. this weekend. Uh, I have a childhood friend uh, that uh, I grew up with and I was in academic teams with a little bit in high school, uh, a guy by the name of David Madden, who went on to be a major Jeopardy champion. And he has since. Uh, become the executive director of a company that does academic tournaments for high school age kids. And uh, was having this, you know, giant national championship for this the History Bowl and History B, which are different formats. I learned uh, I, I was never quite the aficionado of academic competition, uh, although I was I was a journeyman. I was a useful uh, utility player and designated hitter, and uh, you know, sci-fi and and Bible quoting related things back in the day. But yeah, the sci-fi but no, Bible. 
<laughs> the mostly sci-fi Bible, mostly like, uh, yeah, mostly uh, Asimov and Robert Heinlein and such. Um, but yeah, but no, I was I was reading I was reading questions. It's one reason I'm a little hoarse. You know, eight hours on Saturday. Were you screaming the questions at the kids? <laughs> Uh, no, no, no! I was just enunciating them tremendously because it would, it would. It's a lot of f- long names that you uh, have never seen before because you're not as savvy in the ways of actually because they've been deliberately chosen to be difficult and obscure. So, like you know, you don't necessarily know all of them, and you have to enunciate them for rooms full of people. Fair enough. You know, for hours, like Avery Brooks yeah. in the Ops Center of Deep Space Nine, you have to. <laughs> There's an old saying that says, "Fortune favors the bold." Let's hope they're right. Uh, that's my Avery Brooks impression. <laughs> the best enunciator in the world. When <laughs> when you found out that babies weren't delivered by storks, that was an epiphany. This <laughs> is like ATD Business Solutions commercial. Yeah. There was a subsequent one where he just started using uh, lots of Latin prefixes, I think, for large numbers. It's like, first they were kilobytes, then megabytes, <laughs> then terabytes, and then octabytes, yottabytes. And he just kept going for about two minutes. It was yeah, exactly. Good. Oh, man. But yeah, but it was. Yottabytes is yeah. my favorite. Uh... Star Wars themed snack. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I will I will raise one overthinking it related piece. Well, well, first of all, is I got to see. Oh, and I wish I remembered the guy's name. I'm going to try to Google it uh, to see if I can find it. But the National History Bowl was actually the National History B and Bowl this year was actually won the bowl part, which is a team competition with two teams going up against each other in sort of a like a game showish kind of format where you have a buzzer. Um, was actually won by a one man team this year who crushed uh, all his opposition and defeated a four-man team in the finals. Now, when you, say, by- when you say one-man team, you mean like one child team, right? Like one minor, one teenager team. Yeah, I mean like this, you know, this guy's probably, what, 18 years old? Like 17, 18 years old, okay. I'm guessing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, and oh gosh, his name, I know his name was Samir. Everyone just described him as Samir. That's Samir. Uh, oh, it's uh, Samir Rai from Bellarmine College Prep. Is that who it is? Uh, I think that's his name. And if it's not, congratulations to Samir Rai for being <laughs> cited as the National History B uh, champion or bowl champion. Uh, but yeah, no, um, <coughs> he's just, you know, amazing to watch him come up with stuff. Everybody, the, when he finished his lightning round with a perfect score, the whole place was like erupting. You know, he, he won and everyone was on their feet with a standing ovation. It was totally charged. But um, the, uh, the, the reason um, I want to bring it up and overthinking it quickly is that this is an exercise in really intense memorization. Right, really intense memorization of a wide, wide variety of facts. Uh, even in terms of history, it's still a huge range of facts. And uh, it's the kind of thing that we might be tempted to think would not have an attraction for us in this day and age because we can just look all this stuff up if we want it. Uh, but at the same time, it's sort of easier to be better at or, and with the result that people who are the best are so much the best at it. Right, like it isn't a coincidence that the greatest Jeopardy champions are all fairly recent, right? Because the facility and ability that you have to memorize these facts is so much greater than it used to be. There's so much more at your fingertips. And it's so much easier to review what everyone else is doing. Uh, and so I just kind of wanted to toss that out for a brief opinion before we get on to the Star Trek stuff about like what you think about memorization and sort of retaining tons of amounts of information in times when a lot of people choose to delegate that task to the internet. Uh, and whether, whether, how you would see it as a role. Yeah, to something that, like, isn't the Cory Doctorow term for that, like, my outboard brain? 
That is to say, yeah. some sort of outsource functions of recall to this to this thing that is much better at recall than I am. Yeah, and this is like why you should be careful never to let the other person in the relationship do the dishes too often, because eventually you will like mentally delegate that task to them and then be incapable of doing it, right? Like, and like all of a sudden they'll be doing it all the time and they'll resent you and hate you, and you'll just be like, you go to do the dishes, you'll be like, what? I don't know what to do, because your brain does, if you have help, delegate automatically without your your permission. You know, like if you never, if you always look use your GPS for directions, you forget how to read a map. Like that sort of thing tends to happen to people. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. Do you guys have any take on all that stuff? I'm sorry. I forgot what we were talking about. Oh, well, <laughs> to myself then, because I'll cite one of Matt's favorite people, uh, Harold Bloom, favorite human beings in the world. Uh, and because when Harold Bloom, one of the things Harold Bloom always said, and he's a literary critic, prominent literary critic, uh, kind of of the previous generation. You know, prominent, still I mean, up. a popularly prominent literary critic, not really popular, but not really prominent among literary critics who kind of don't know what to make of him anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, prestigious, but also kind of like eccentric. I suppose. Wait, so right. he's, he's previous generation, like 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 Captain Kirk, previous generation. So who's, <laughs> who's the next generation of literary critics? I don't think they cut him from that mold anymore, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> who, who is the Avery Brooks of literary critics? <laughs> uh, oh, I mean, what like David West? Cornel West. <laughs> oh. no, he's not a literary critic. Oh, what was it going to be, Matt? What I was going to say. I was going to say David Bromwich. Uh, because of the the sense of rectitude, don't you just get a sense of rectitude from David Bromwich? That... <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing I was going to say about was that Harold Bloom in one of his books uh, talks about or one of his interviews I read, maybe it was in a book where it wasn't, one of the things that, what made him good at writing literary criticism? And he said that it was really useful for him that he had a really good memory. He felt like ever since he was a kid, he was able to remember a lot of what he'd read. And this was kind of really important to writing large books that sort of made sweeping generalizations about culture, right, and literary history, uh, which is that it's important to be able to retain a ton of stuff. Um, and I wonder whether this opens up the role in our society that maybe we don't talk about that much of people who beca- who pe- that like you. It's almost like our 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 sort of inf- information infrastructure has a RAM and a ROM, like and the ROM is in in sort of functionally, not in terms of them being read only and being erased when you turn the power off, but like the ROM is like the internet that is out there that is like the memory that we all have accessible to us, but we have to go access it. Versus like the people who have the ready access to tons of information, right? And that, that there's an interface where people go to the ROM and they like pull out memory and they put it into the RAM. And to be able to do certain really complex intellectual tasks, you have to be able to like chug a lot of stuff into your RAM at once, right? Like you have to be able to remember a lot of the things that you look up on the internet in order to make certain kinds of synthesis out of it. Yeah, but I, uh, uh, well, I want to, I mean, so like, let me give the metaphor of like digestion. And, and I suppose mm-hmm. if you take this metaphor, to its logical conclusion, like works of literary criticism or creative works, are the the turds that you extrude uh, after you know the process of digestion is, uh, has taken place. And the useful the useful kind of memorization is like um, is rumination, and I mean that literally in the sense of like a cow ruminating on its cud, right? Like the the kind I mean, of figuratively in comparison to a cow ruminating on its cud, right? Right, but I. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean it not uh I mean it well okay yes fair enough I mean it fig- figuratively in reference to the literal process not figuratively in reference to how figuratively that word is used to mean you know thinking a lot of time right like the kind of the multiple the kind of multiple uh digestions of information and that is the useful I think if you are going to write sort of nomic generalizations about about any field that is the useful sort of sort of thing as opposed to the kind of the human model of you know eat once crap 24 hours later uh which let's call the like the BuzzFeed model of you know I don't know uh, seventy four uh, greatest cat photos right like that's that's the the intellectual level of that kind of thing you know or the or the what I don't know the induced vomiting model right which is mm. a lot of a lot of internet which is maybe the trivia which is maybe the like the trivia contest model of like just like just shove it into short term memory long enough that you can like you can uh, you know hacking cough it up um i mean i don't think i would diminish and and kind of insult the efforts that these people are putting in that much uh but i would i would pose this hypothetical what if you took someone who was sort of like a sensitive learn a learned person of a very human sort and you gave them the capacity to interface with a great collective machine mind say by like implanting them with some sort of assimilating implants <laughs> that then allow them to uh to be more than they were what if a human being could have the best of both worlds. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, that's a, that's an interesting place to to um, to pivot to Star Trek because what is, what are the two worlds that are being made? I mean, that are being made the best of, right? Like, what do you think the title is a reference to? And maybe we should throw this to our honored guest so that, you know, you can... I mean, did we make it clear why we're talking about it this week before we go into it too deep? Yeah, we did. So, so We did? Okay. So what I, that There's what, a Fathom event. You could have gone to see this in the movie theater right. all over the country. But it's all, I mean, it's also... What's, what's happening is they are basically remaking Star Trek The Next Generation from the original, right, from the original elements. So the, the show was shot on 35mm film, but it was posted on videotape. So it was posted at 480i. Uh, A a resolution like less than the crappiest of YouTube videos uh, that, you know, um, that you see on YouTube. So the, the, the show, when they, when they thought about re-releasing Star Trek, the next generation as Blu-ray as 1080p, uh, video, um, there was no way that they could upconvert what was there because what was there was so irrevocably crappy, uh, by our standards now, um, though it was very, very pretty at the time. So what they did, what they're doing now is they're going back like CBS home entertainment, uh, under the direction of the Okudas, um, Michael and Mrs. Okuda, <laughs> Mr. And, Mr. and Mrs. Denise. Michael and Denise, Denise Okuda. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Michael and Denise, um, who were at the screening I saw, by the way, uh, who were there and like gave a little speech beforehand. And it make me, made me wish I had my um, Star Trek The Next Generation technical manual in the, you know, the big book and the, the red shiny binding. Or uh, my bootleg uh, Star Trek The Next Generation writer's technical guide that I had. Um, 
and that is still in my childhood room somewhere in my mother's house uh, for them for them to sign because I totally right. would have fanboyed that up. Um, so, uh, so that's why we're talking about this this week. Well, Let's toss the question to Ben Krinsky. <laughs> <laughs> what are the best? What are the two worlds that are the best of two worlds in the best of oh, the best of both worlds in the famous Star Trek: Next Generation episode? So it's a question I've I've mulled over, and I actually am still a little bit confused about what the 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 answer is. I think half of the answer is pretty obvious, which is that Picard, I think, is supposed to be the best representative of um, the Federation that the Borg want to assimilate and want to use for their nefarious plan to uh, to, to conquer the Federation, basically. And, and I think they, they, they say as much in the episode, um, the sort of the, the, the uh, disembodied voice of the collective right after they grab Picard off of the bridge says something like, you, you uh, are captain of the most powerful vessel in the Federation fleet, you speak for your people. Um, so they have this, I guess we could talk more about this if, if you like, sort of this might makes right philosophy. Um, and so to them, Picard is this military leader, I guess, who, um, uh, yeah, sort of represents the, what the Borg see as one of the best aspects of the Federation. So they want him in particular. Um, but the other world I'm still actually I'm a bit confused about, um, uh, because the Borg, the Borg don't have really better or worse parts. They are <laughs> this collective entity that, that thinks with one mind, and and uh, yeah, it, it, I, yeah, I don't know what. But Locutus has a name. Locutus has a name. The the Borg True. that that sort of Picard comes to represent is sort of a a fulfillment of individuality within the collective of the Borg. Yeah, in but a way his, that the Borg. his name is is you know like a kind of a latin nonce word that ref- that kind of means by reference like speaker or mouthpiece you know it's not a name that that references his individuality it's a name that references the function that they've chosen for him well, it's complicated because of the retconning that happens in <laughs> contact. Yeah, right. right. Oh, let's let's bracket that. Let's not bring that into the discussion. <laughs> well, I mean, it's important to just note that in Star Trek: First Contact, they talk a lot about how Locutus was special, but we're talking about the best of both worlds as sort of if you went to the movie theater and saw it as a standalone thing to an right. extent, right? Like, and in which case, we're going off of sort of what it is about rather than the stuff that's recon about it. So what's happened right, is they've right. remade the show, you see, from the original 35 million. Matt, for Christ's sake, <laughs> let, let the guest talk. No, no, it's fine. I, I, I was going to say, well, it was kind of, uh, I guess, picking up what you just said, Pete, um, about as a standalone um, sort of piece of entertainment, as a standalone film, I mean, another, another way of interpreting it would be um, that this this drama pits the best of these two worlds against each other. So, in other words, the the, the awesome, overwhelming power of um, of the Borg Collective, which I guess you could say is their best, against sort of the 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 rugged individualism that the the members of the Federation are supposed to represent. Um, that that somehow this is a struggle between these two very different ideologies and different ways of structuring societies, I suppose, if, if we want to go that far. Um, and, and, and sure enough, of course, uh, spoiler alert, the, uh, the individualistic Federation citizens uh, went out in yeah. the end. I mean, and that's also a parallel to the, the Riker story, which is the sort Riker. of core story, too, where, where it's, a, it's the best of... I mean, there's the Riker story of his own personal journey, but to step outside of that to what's happening with Riker, it's the best of what Riker has learned from Picard and what sort of Picard represents within the Federation uh, as sort of being a, a sort of 
experienced senior source of, of knowledge, right. right? Just sort of like well of knowledge about the Federation and all the best practices the Federation has developed over time and all the things that come with being sort of an esteemed leader within the Federation and the, and the skills and abilities that come with that versus uh, the sort of individuality that is more associated with being more junior, right? Which is uh, the sort of brashness and unpredictability that's associated with being a first officer rather than a captain. Well, I mean, right? this, is, this is actually a really interesting point and it goes to something that you were saying before about like memorizing facts ver- versus sort of internalizing large bodies of information, you know, outboard brain versus sort of like long experience. Because, you know, Picard, uh, let's remember that Picard had a reputation that kind of comes out as the series prog- progresses as being like incredibly ad- inventive in the face of adversity or in the face of sort of uh, no options. I mean, Picard, after all, is the inventor of the Picard maneuver, right? <laughs> a, uh, you know, a, that's a- where he pulls his shirt down, right? <laughs> I actually, I mean, yes no, and yes. <laughs> no, no joke, Richard. There were a couple of times when I, uh, when I was looking at Riker's, uh, you know, uniform, kind of bunching up around his pecs, <laughs> and I was like, "You really have not mastered the the Picard uniform tuck." Because season three was when they transitioned from the spandex onesie uniforms mm. to the, you know, to the two piece wool uniforms uh, with the high collars and the collars eventually changed but um it, it just goes to show that Riker wasn't ready to take over the melbourne he hadn't mastered all of those skills that uh, picard you know represents as you were the, saying Pete. <laughs> yeah the waistband the, the waistband tug um right. i don't know what, what what do you think of that of that uh i mean what were your impressions seeing the seeing the episodes again richard because you you along with with ben and me are the uh, we're the ones who i who actually went to the theater and saw the the thing right uh well, I did notice, actually, that the Borg do explicitly say here that their goal is to improve themselves, which is something that I didn't remember was referenced this early on. Because also, I know that they also talk- to raise quality of life for all people. Right, mm-hmm. right. So um, that could be the thing that, that it's the, they're really looking for to uh, incorporate the best of what everyone else has to offer. But the only way that they have to do that is to completely destroy mm-hmm. what they assimilate. Um, they can't. They can't kind of absorb it and yet leave it intact, the way that, say, Riker has absorbed Picard's, you know, knowledge and mannerisms and sort of. But he incorporates it into himself without harming Picard, and without uh, destroying who he used to be. Right. Maybe let's talk a little bit about the word assimilate mm. in and of itself, right? Because I think the, the Borg there, they're using it incorrectly, right? Um, I don't know. When we talk about immigrants assimilating into uh, a mainstream society, right? I mean, there is... Uh, uh, this is going to get pretty political here, right? But I mean, like, there, sure, there is a certain aspect of... Uh, of integrating, sort of being able to just consider yourself to be one with the mainstream, sort of indistinguishable from the mainstream. But at least in the American context, I don't know if it necessarily involves destroying and getting rid of the, you know, the, the, the original. I think it's safe to say that, very, that different people have really different emotional attitudes towards the idea of cultural assimilation as either like a huge evil or as like sort of a a, a, a really good thing that makes it better for everybody, right? Like it, it runs the gamut the way that people feel about cultural assimilation, right? Um, 
but yeah, but it's like it doesn't seem to resemble what the Borg does. I mean, it resembles what the Borg does here. In I feel like because the group changes when the individual is assimilated into the group too. Right. right when the Borg do that, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that, and that's really what you're talking about. It's like sort of where's the balance? What's the cost to the individual of their personal destruction, or to the sort of less powerful race of the destruction of their individuality and culture, and just their own subjective lives, which have presumably been totally hijacked? What's the cost to them versus the the cost and benefit to the Borg? And 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 that and you could see that and sort of where the balance is in that question is kind of the good or bad of assimilation, and it's one we won't resolve in real life on this podcast. But we might do it in Star Trek world. I think world. destruction. Yeah, de- <laughs> right. I think destruction is is maybe putting it a little strongly. And like honestly, the the example that comes to mind because I've been looking at the calendar and planning uh, future weeks podcasts is uh, Cinco de Mayo because we will record a podcast on Cinco de on the fifth of May, right? And like the the recontextualization of of Cinco de Mayo as an excuse for white people to drink, right? Like. <laughs> Uh, you know, versus the the what the original meeting uh, having to do with the Battle of Puebla. Um, yeah, Cinco de Mayo isn't really all that important a Mexican holiday. Right, right, but it is. I mean, it is a, a holiday with you know pers- with particular significances in uh, what like one Mexican state, and uh, you know the the significances have changed. And I think that's that's the rather than the dis- so it's it's rather than the destruction of meaning, it's a kind of recontextualization or a re or a kind of an appropriation of meaning, uh, which I guess you could you could argue is a destruction, but um, is is maybe a little more nuanced than just. Poof, you know, there is no more yeah. Cinco, Cinco de Mayo anymore. I mean, the way the Borg refer to it is we will add your uniqueness to our own. So, the, the, I mean, the, the, the Borg talking about having a collective uniqueness is kind of an interesting claim to make. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point I, I, I was going to um, sort of try and circle back to, which is that it's it, and I think, Fenzel, you were meant, you were, you're talking about. Um, sort of the, about cultural assimilation and sort of what is gained or lost by both uh, parties when, say, an immigrant comes to a new country, sort of how has the country changed and how has that person changed? Um, the, the point I think Richard made about um, improving quality of life for all species sort of seems to indicate that the Borg have this uh, this notion that somehow um, you, you are better off as a drone, you're better off as, this, as part of this shared consciousness. But um, after the Borg assimilate a species, um, they don't seem to fundamentally change at all. So, I mean, what, is the, what do the Borg really get out of this <laughs> besides knowledge? I think they seem to be hungry for just knowing everything that a... Yeah. A, a, well, a, well, so the Borg still fly around in the Q spaceship, but on the May 5th, they drink tequila. <laughs> I think I think this is kind Game of a problem with too, I guess. Yeah. Um, but sorry. Yeah, this is kind of a problem with the Borg. I think and the problem with the Borg is that they really aren't great long-term characters in a series. <laughs> like it's sort of like I wonder what would have happened if, if Voyager had instead decided to bring in, um, like the uh, let me see, hold on, I'm trying to find the name of them exactly. Like if they brought in the uh, the guys from Darmok. <laughs> Oh, the Tamarians? <laughs> no, Tamarians. no, the Marians. Like, 
Is like, that the Temerians? Oh, yeah, those are yeah, the Temerians. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I was thinking of the Pakleds, who are different people. Yeah. Oh, like, what, <laughs> they look even better. <laughs> like, what if Voyager had, like, a really sexy Temerian on the ship? And they had to come up with new ways for the Temerian to speak in metaphor, like, in Greek. So. Oh, God. And it, God. With these stupid subplots of the Temerian telling a story about Ghostbusters or something. I mean, just, like, shock when the walls fell. Exactly, Mark. the walls fell big time. But, yeah, but it's like... I mean, if, before, it's, a, if it's a... It's a uh, like a sexy Tamarian. It would be like uh, what, like Tommy Lee and Jenna at the the, the boat. <laughs> That's what you're into, I guess. But I mean, like I feel like there are like three really great Borg plot lines uh, that I know. Right? There's the the one where Q shows Picard the Borg in order to scare him and to sort of like gaslight him or whatever to like emotionally lose <laughs> him into being dependent on him like a pet or like a like a abused spouse, right? It's like, you know, you you need me because otherwise I'll have you killed. Uh, which is just such a terrible thing to do. But like there's that whole story where the Borg you're introduced to the Borg and they're they're supposed to represent like the vastness of the universe that Picard isn't really capable of handling himself at this point, despite his like largesse large as his like impressiveness and the second one is this one right where it's like a parallel for personal development in this epic story where there's all this awesome stuff that's going on and then there's the story of where it's like it's like uh doesn't like lore show up and hang out with the borg at one point mm. or and there's yeah. like a name this- or something well yeah there that's was one before that right yeah, that's when Hugh. Hugh, they, Hugh. they yeah they discover uh a single borg uh yeah. and kind of bring him back to individuality yeah, yeah. yeah, and I feel you like those mm, once, and you can't really do them a lot, yeah. right? Like you don't want to have a hue every episode, which is what they did, right? And it's like yeah. uh, so because the Borg, you're totally right; they don't change enough because they they have to remain foreboding and unknown mm-hmm. in order to serve their purpose, which means that you can't really get into too much detail, or else they stop functioning as as a story item the way that you want them to, unless you come up with some awesome way to take it to the next level, which they do at some points, but in general, there's failures or shortcomings. I don't know limits. Yeah, I was going to say that, and, the, and that that whole Hugh storyline where the a bunch of Borg became uh, individuals, uh, I think, was their attempt to bring to, to to move them in a different direction, and it didn't really work that well, in in my opinion. I mean, it, the Borg just became basically a group of thugs, and I think that's when they sort of uh, decided to to uh, sort of retcon in this this idea that. Um, sort of that was just a small group of, of the Borg. It wasn't the entire collective that had been, been individualized by, by Lore and by Hugh. The, the, the Borg were actually no longer scary. They, the only way for them to be scary would be this faceless um, machine that was always coming at you. Yeah, um, and yet not- then they went on and, and, and introduced the Borg Queen. Mm, true. Which, despite the fact that that was a good movie, I think that that was really where the Borg started to get very watered down. Yep. It's sort of like how in any in any horror franchise where there's like a scary villain horror person that's coming after you in more or less the same way each time, the series inevitably gets increasingly silly. <laughs> like, like, you know, Friday, yep. Halloween H2O is the one with Buster Rhymes in it, right? Like, <laughs> and that's what happens to the Borg is they get H2O'd. They get like, they get leprechaun hooded. <laughs> what happens to them? <laughs> like, uh, I guess uh, they just... Well, I was going to say, the only way I guess they could have improved Star Trek First Contact would have been to uh, bring in Warwick Davis. <laughs> did they? They probably did at some point. <laughs> I mean, he played a bunch of... He's played... Oh, he wasn't R2-D2. 
But did he, did Warwick play? I want to ask Jeeves if Warwick Davis ever played a robot. <laughs> <laughs> Why you ask that? Let me, let me circle back to something we brought up earlier, which is the whole thing about how the Borg chose Picard. Um, you know, as their uh, mouthpiece to speak to the humans to prepare them for assimilation, right? As I rewatched the episode recently, I, I asked myself, like, that's is that the most logical choice for the Borg? You know, as as their as their spokesperson, and like I, I like I, I try to think of like analogies for us, right? Like, it's not even like they would like you know they came and uh, assimilated the president. And, uh, and, you know, turn the president into a mouthpiece, although some would say that's happened already. Obama. Um, it's more like they took, like, not even the joint chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or, like, the General Petraeus before his, his downfall. It's like the one, like, great, awesome uh, Navy aircraft carrier commander. And they took him. Right. So on one hand, like, if you're if you're trying to get, like, a great PR spokesperson as, like, you know, some of the humans would be like, oh, my God, that's that, you know, the great hero that we all know and love like that's kind of a bad choice but uh, thinking about from the borg perspective like were they really going for that or were they trying to uh, assimilate his knowledge first and foremost or were they trying to get um, the best of both worlds i think that they're pr- i mean they're pretty clear that they the former right like they're not just after his knowledge of starfleet are they i mean you, you, i'll i'll i oh by the way warwick davis played marvin the paranoid android in the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy movie <laughs> he wasn't yeah, so that's the answer to your question but anyway um, I don't know. It seems to me the former, not the latter, but I'll, I'll bow out and let other people jump in too. Well, well, I was, I mean, I, yeah, I think, I think that make what you said makes sense, Mark. Um, it, 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 I mean, he is effectively the, the commander of the, of the flagship of the fleet. He, he's not a, you know, a political authority really, um, nor is he, you know, the head of Starfleet. Um, they obviously the board do benefit greatly from assimilating his knowledge because they apparently use all of his, um, strategic and tactical knowledge to destroy the Federation fleet that attacks the Borg cube, and to anticipate um, the energy weapon that you know they're going to use, um, the Enterprise is going to use against the Borg. But um, but yeah, I, I wonder that that line maybe is is one that the writers hoped we wouldn't dwell on too much when the the Borg collective says you you are the, the the captain of the most powerful ship in the fleet. You you speak for your people. I don't know. I don't know if that was. I don't know how well they thought that out. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It kind of makes sense because what do the Borg do except fly around in ships? Like at this mm. point in the story, not much. Mm. It's it, there's almost Marxist where it's sort of like you know whatever happens, the proletariat are the good guys because the best, the most important thing that's happening is the people who are manufacturing shoes, right? Like, and it's like, yeah. well, what about in the future when businesses are different? And it's like, I, I, like I, I saw some clips from Metropolis uh, uh, Saturday night at, playing at a bar. When I was uh, after I was done reading for the bull, and it just struck me just the the combination of of how it's like expectation that certain things about the future are going to be very very similar to how they are right now, such mm. that there is like a large like industrial working class that lives in the same city as the upper class, but literally beneath them, right? Like and, and like like so and that's this idea where you get a little bit away from what you're thinking about, but you don't get all the way away from it. And the Borg are sort of like that, and it's like uh, in the sense that they don't seem to have. Uh, the ability to understand they, they seem to assimilate lots and lots of people, but they don't understand the way that people would live or don't value the way that people live or the things that people would do that are different from what their hive mind is doing. That's also an interesting point because they, they, um, as much as, as, as much as made of the fact that they can, they can adapt to uh, different sorts of weapons and different sorts of circumstances. They seem fairly entrenched in one way of doing things. Right. Yeah. Um, they, they actually are not 
they don't have this the ability to adapt as widely um, as it seems at first. Because, uh, for example, Riker is able to essentially outsmart the Borg collective with his new plan to distract the ship with uh, you know fireworks display, and then they go and they get Picard back and all of that. So it, it yeah, it's an interesting point about the fact that the Borg. Uh, even though they seem invincible, they actually their inflexibility is is in some sense their uh, their undoing. Yeah, which could just be about the economics of the Soviet Union. I mean, that could be what it's all about, and like people just making tons of televisions in Hungary and like not having any market for it. Um, well, never mind. <laughs> that's little, maybe that's even a little too far of a rabbit hole. I don't know. Don't you? Don't you think We're not talking about Star Trek Six, Pete. We're not talking about. The <laughs> The well, actually, the undiscovered uh, country from whose born no traveler returns. <laughs> well, if we can go um, a little bit outside, I think that it was, I think it was in the novel Vendetta uh, that Peter David wrote um, in the Star Trek universe, uh, featuring the return of the Borg, where at one point they, the Borg, uh, assimilate a Ferengi captain, a Daemon, I guess. And uh, they gain the ability to negotiate, huh? Because they just now they now they have this now they have this idea of of commerce. So then they set up a sovereign wealth fund, right? <laughs> That's how you do that so, in the economy. Is so <laughs> like, I, I want to talk a little bit about Vendetta because uh, I remember reading it when I was a teenager because it was a giant novel, right? There yeah. were the Star Trek novels, the number one, the the numbered ones, and then there were the giant novels like Vendetta and Imzadi and right. uh, you know and the rest. It was actually Vendetta is also where they got the idea for Seven of Nine. Huh? How'd that come oh. about? Uh, there was basically the exact story of, uh, Seven of Nine. She had a different name and whatever, but the background was basically the same. They just ripped it straight out of this book and stuck it on Voyager. Wow. Man. So uh, that, uh, th- this is maybe just nerdy trivia. I mean, it's just nerdy trivia, but yeah. it's funny that there's a whole, uh, novel about uh, the confluence of the Borg and the Ferengi because the Ferengi were originally... In, if I'm not mistaken, intended to be the major villain on Star Trek The Next Generation. They were mm, uh, right, brought right. in in season one, and then they were just too silly to be a serious threat to the Federation. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so then uh, the Borg were invented as the, to be the major uh, villain on The Next Generation, to be sort of... Basically, they, they didn't have... Um, the original series had the Klingons, of course, were, were a major villain, the Romulans to some extent, and they were searching for the perfect foe for this new, this new crew, um, so anyway, I just think it's funny that, that a, a novel relied so heavily upon the the, the villain that sort of fizzled. <laughs> well, this raises an interest. Oh, so go ahead. Yeah, they wrote themselves into a corner when they said that that none of the women were allowed to wear clothing. <laughs> you know, the, like it really limits the kind of stories that you can tell. To you know, you know like you couldn't have star-crossed lovers, human Ferengi lovers, or right, anything, right? right? It is pretty <laughs> dumb how excited everyone is to meet the Ferengi at the beginning of the yes. Farpoint episode. Yes. It's like oh, they're like Yankee traders. I can't wait to see how this turns out. Yeah. I bet they're awesome. It's yeah, like, well, they. I think the, the, the two major problems were one that the way they were just portrayed in the first episode uh, where they were introduced. Um, I think the Armin Shimmerman, who's actually what the actor who played Quark later on in DS9, was one of those original Ferengi, mm-hmm. and I think he was quoted as saying that that we came across as angry gerbils, um, <laughs> really, uh, you know, monsters. And then, and then also, I think somewhat it dawned on someone that um, uh, you know it's hard to threaten. Um, it's hard for capitalists to be threatening to a civilization that uses no money. 
Um, well, so let's, I mean, let's talk about this actually, right? Like, because Pete's, Pete talking about the Soviet Union sort of got, got me thinking about it, right? And this, it, it strikes me that there, that there is kind of a hole in the, kind of at the center of the, the Star Trek universe, which is the idea that like solving the economic problem solves everything. Right. Like solving the problem of economic scarcity makes everybody suddenly like noble and honorable uh, in oh, in the oh. human race. Yeah. You know what it didn't solve like this? It didn't solve like the um, that insatiable careerism that has everybody telling Riker ah. that his career is standing still. Well, right, and that has, yeah. Shelby totally like, you know, trying to try desperately trying to climb the ladder. Right. There's that. There's that. And like, you know, the fact that like. uh I, you know, I don't know. I, I, when I re maybe it's just that I was a child, like I was a prepubescent child when I watched Star Trek The Next Generation for the first time. Uh, but when I re rewatched it, like, it Every planet is an opportunity for Riker to Sarge, like without you know, I don't know, with no right, with no limits. Um, it's uh, it's amazing. Yeah, even the planet where there are no men and women. <laughs> yeah, wait, the one where the plant stings him and it, and it ends up all being about his sex life anyway. Where they don't have gender identity. They don't have gender. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He even, he even manages to to seduce a genderless alien. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that like Troy is not, you know, that that like it's clear that she's a little bothered by it, but she's so enlightened that she's gonna like let him, you know, sow his wild oats or whatever. Uh, Right. Like that. I don't I don't I don't buy that. Right. Like, I don't know, like having having enough money, having enough like dilithium crystals to to give you whatever you want doesn't solve the problem that like mommy loved your brother more than you. You know, it doesn't solve the problem (laughs) that you can't like, you know, that you can't get the girl you want. Right. Like, you know, she doesn't like you. It doesn't solve it doesn't solve a lot of interpersonal problems that seem to me to be legitimate sources of sort of uh, the kind of super villain that I'm hoping Benedict Cumberbatch will be bringing to Star Trek Into Darkness. Um, yeah, it actually, it doesn't, it also doesn't prevent um, Cisco's father from having waiters at his restaurant right. on Earth. Which, <laughs> yeah. so, I'm sorry, it's, it's interesting, you know, you wonder what, what, what their reason for being there is. Right, well, totally. like Picard says, we are trying to better ourselves. Mm. <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, the, um, oh, uh, the uh, just, Gene Roddenberry, I'm going to sort of try to coin a term here that will probably never be used again. Gene Roddenberry is kind of like a post-colonial noble savagist. Where he's like, he's, he sort of thinks that the things that make people bad are like the modern products of Western civilization. And if we could just sort of get rid of them, then everything would be good. So it's like, you know, his original draft of Star Trek, the movie is all about atheism, right? And it's like, well, if we weren't religious, then we'd be awesome to each other. And if we didn't have money, then we'd be awesome to each other. Like if we didn't have all these things that our culture makes us do, then we, our true spirit would shine through. And, and then like, of course, the way we've seen this historically is like, look at native americans they have magical powers that are awesome you know like <laughs> uh, it's like well no it turns out the human condition is kind of universal and difficult to deal with <laughs> and like uh and though that's why some of the best star trek is the stuff that other people that sort of interpret within gene roddenberry's framework right, right. which sort of inspires challenges like and tensions in its impossibility right. i'm right. interrupted well, you know i can tell you there is there is a point at sorry no uh, you there's go. a point okay there's a point um in uh, Deep Space Nine, where uh, 
I think it was I think it was Cisco says uh, that the the problem with Earth is that it's paradise. Yep. That um, the Federation can't really wrap their head around problems like the Dominion or other things that crop up when when you're out at the edge of space because they're living in a perfect place. Right. Totally. I, I sorry. I didn't mean to I cut you off. Um, but no, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, so yeah, that, that I was I was actually thinking that the exact same quote. And it, I, this is a place where Deep Space Nine actually sort of sidesteps this this question about um, aspects of human nature that are not noble. In that, what they do is is they don't you know try and really explain why Earth is a utopia. They just assert that it is, and then they they go on about you know. Um, portraying this drama, which is supposed to be outside the sphere in some sense of the Federation. It's on the frontier. And so things are messier on Bajor. Things are messier uh, with the Cardassians. They, you know, they don't, they haven't reached this enlightened state, but um, they of course never can spell out exactly how you get there. Um, it's kind of a tragedy of the common situation because this star trek is essentially a western and that means it requires there to be an open range right right and but we of course know from experience that open ranges eventually become enclosed right um just because that's the way people work the other thing i was gonna say about what you were saying pete is is that um this is i never conceived of roddenberry's philosophy quite that way it's it's interesting because he um was widely thought of as this sort of secular humanist but 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 star trek is a science fiction um series i would say that where the 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 federation characters don't have i mean they they have certain i guess codified laws and and beliefs but there isn't really a strong overarching ideology or dogma i suppose some of that's intentional because roddenberry was fairly anti-clerical and anti-religious Oh um, yeah, I mean, I, but, he wasn't the only one doing the show. Like other people no, no, pushed true. back on a lot of what he was doing, right? True. Like they didn't make his version of Star Trek the movie well, right, like, for me, a reason. True. Well, me, but but, but it's simply, simply, I mean, it's it's not that there's like everyone in the Federation has necessarily agreed to a particular moral code, right? Except in very vague terms about being sort of nice to each other and tolerant and having free speech and stuff. The, I, I want to. I mean, I I I think told this story on the on the show before, but it's it's relevant here. I met a uh, a guy who was a uh, sort of frequent director on Star Trek: The Next Generation and uh, some of the later series, and um, was involved with with some of the guys who wrote who wrote and sort of controlled the show. And I was in the at the time I was in the middle of rewatching. Uh, seasons one through seven on Netflix, and I, I, you know, after sort of like bowing and scraping in front of this great person who was involved in this thing, um, I said, you know, I've been rewatching it, and like season three, greatest of Star Trek: The Next Generation seasons, like is when the show becomes the show that I remember from my childhood, right? Like I, it, one and two were kind of a slog for me to get through, and he said, and and I'm not going to say his name actually because. Uh, um, because of what he said, but he said, yeah, that's when they basically elbowed Gene out, you know, before mm. he, before he, uh, passed away. Um, they sort of el- elbowed him out because his thing was that no one on the ship could have a conflict with one another. Right. The conflict was always between characters, the, the main cast and outside forces. There couldn't be internal tensions, uh, internal tensions within the ship and that like introducing that went so much uh so far uh, in the direction of making it a much much more watchable and interesting uh drama right that um totally yeah, yeah. 
So, sorry, I didn't mean to. I, I was going to say that 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 echoes. Um, I think actually, the late Michael Pillar said something very similar when they were developing Deep Space Nine. He said something about how conflict um, is the is the root of of drama. It's the root of storytelling. And if you have no conflict among the characters, you have no story. So yeah. that's that's why DS Nine I think was intentionally much right. Yeah, because well. what you what you have is this hagiography. Hey, what you have is this sort of quasi imperialist project about like you know exporting the values of the humans to the rest of the universe, right? Like going out, you know, going out and telling people, you know, why they have it wrong. I mean, there's really two ways to turn like a non-story into a story that captivates the human imagination. <laughs> there, there are three. There are three ways, but uh, I'll say what the third one is after oh. you've done your. Two. Well, I was going to say four ways. Fear, surprise, and the two ways are to add a conflict. Right, a conflict that you know drives the story, conflict that makes something happen, conflict that then compels the story to be told, provides an occasion for why we're doing it, uh, sets the characters against each other in interesting ways. And the second way, if you decide not to actually do that, is just to have William Shatner do it. As long as he's the one doing it with a full force of will, uh, it's fine. <laughs> there, there is a third way, Pete, which is to have Tim Riggins and Rihanna carry a very large bomb down a hallway uh, <laughs> in the middle of the film Battleship. Right? Like, Fine uh, film, Battleship. Uh, <laughs> well, I think um, it's uh, I think it's Raymond Chandler's rule of if you're if you're of, of writing that if you're out of ideas, have somebody burst in the door with a gun. <laughs> right. Right. In that you know you you you. And, and as you figure out what the hell he's doing there, your story will go somewhere. So, yeah, it's that conflict so thing. Inter- and then again, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. It's interesting to me, actually, speaking of people like bursting, into, bursting onto the scene, that we have not talked about Lieutenant Commander Shelby at all, right? Mm. He's totally, totally important. Yeah, totally. Um, that, that, like... Uh, I don't know. As a counterpoint, as a counterpoint to Riker, I mean, the the more I watch, I like. We actually haven't talked a lot about the experience of of watching the episode on the big screen, which I would like to get to, even though we're running a little long, right? Because it was it was really interesting to me. Um, like there there were positive and positives and negatives. The negatives were. Um, that they uh, they edited both episodes together into one sort of eighty minute long experience, so you didn't have separate, you didn't have the cliffhanger moment with with the title card that said "to be continued" and that awesome awesome music cue, which is like da da da. With this, like, you know, weird kind of atonal, uh, uh, very awesome music. Um, Here, here, here. (laughs) Yeah. After they made such a big deal about it in the collateral, right? In the, like, the value added collateral that that they showed uh, from the Blu ray disc set. You see, what they've done is gone back to the original. Um, but like the the uh, the positive was like you could see the kind of the structure uh, a lot more clearly by putting you know by putting the two together as one thing. And what struck me is that like if you count um, the number of like Star Trek always goes out on a soap opera take. Uh, which is like one character having like a very portentous look in his or her eyes as the camera sort of pushes in on him or mm-hmm. her, and like mm-hmm. uh, you know a music cue swells to. Uh, and Nathan Fillion actually explained the soap opera take for actors in practical terms is three steps. You have three thoughts. One is, uh, did I leave the oven on? Two is, <laughs> yes, yes, I did leave the oven on. And three is, wait, I don't have an oven. 
<laughs> and if you can, if you can like convey those three thoughts uh, clearly uh, in your face, then you can act on act on a soap opera. Um, and like the number of soap opera takes at the act breaks was was breaking like five to one in favor of Riker uh, as opposed to anyone else, right? Like, it was always him, like, turning his head 45 degrees, you know, opening to camera and, like, staring at the wall really intently so that it was, like, really... um uh, it was really, uh, you know, clear that that kind of it was it was his story. So that like uh, Shelby is a foil for him was important. And that sorry, the, wait, let me close that loop. That was one of the interesting things about seeing it. Also, it was super dark and very contrasty. The picture. I mean, let's let's talk about Shelby for a hot second because I feel like she's really important to acknowledge. She's the kind of character that we haven't really seen on Star Trek up until this point. Right, which is that she's a strong. I, I want to say, you know what? I'm going to stop say the word strong because whatever. That's too cliche. It is too wrapped up. She's an ambitious, capable, not really very sexual female character, right? Uh, and and she's and she's not a. She's also not like a cigar chomping villain character, as well. Like she's a she's a challenger who comes in to the scene and she also happens to have this sort of gender thing going on with her, which I think is really important. Um, but one of the great things about Shelby, right, is that she's actually talking about play to the top of your intelligence. She's good, right? Like she's good at her job and, and she's, she's so threatening to Riker and so much of the episode is seen through his eyes. Um, that uh, they, they do have to work hard to make her not villainous. Like, she sort of seems villainous at the, at the top, but I think in the end calculus, she ultimately isn't villainous. Like, they do walk that line in this episode between her being, like, the new thing that is kind of threatening and automatically making that evil or making that very trivial by its evilness or flattening it out, right? She sort of stays textured and complex in the way that she uh, kind of comes in. Now, of course... I'm sure that there's ways that she's very offensive. I, I, I didn't actually watch the episode this Thursday, so I haven't seen it as freshly as you guys have. Um, but, I mean, I don't know. What do you guys think about all that stuff? Well, I was just going to say that's an interesting dynamic you pointed out because I was, I was just imagining uh, just a, a, another episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, which, I mean, imagine a Star Trek The Next Generation episode in which it was just Shelby coming on the ship, that there was no Borg threat. Then I think she clearly would be the villain, right? She would be challenging the the authority of of one of our main characters, um, oh, totally. and, and that would and be and that would be it really you know would completely change the dynamic, even if, if even if the character were played in, in much the same way. Um, but I think well, this might this doesn't directly address um, your your main point, but just as a footnote, I think one of the things that makes her ultimately endearing, and this is something that I just love about this two part episode in general, is the whole thing is. Uh, a forceful argument for the the incredible competence and professionalism of Starfleet officers. Um, Shelby is just really good at her job, and that makes her ultimately a, a heroic character and one who's able to overcome this this great threat. Um, but but yeah, in a different in a different context, it would be and she would be an upstart and a and a and a, thre- and a villain. Right, because yeah, in yeah. the in the absence of an existential threat, right, the hero of Star Trek: The Next Generation is harmony among all people. Right. And right. that like anything, anything that upsets that balance is like, you know, needs a couple sessions with Counselor Troy. Right. Uh, right. And would probably be her mom. Right. Like, would be the problem. <laughs> or, uh, yeah. Or Ensign Barkley. Right. Later. What? Lieutenant. Barkley, <laughs> but, you know. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it, it is. It is. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, it's um, 
it's similar to how things play out in real life in the sense that it often and I, she reminds me of a lot of the talk about leaning in that's really big in the in the culture right now right because i mean she's ultimately a corporate you know a, a, a corporate climber right is the equivalent she'd be like a military mm-hmm. status climber mm-hmm. um but of course she's like super super good at her job and, and here's what i wanted to say to sort of tie a lot of what we've talked about together right is like to what degree is Riker's success in this episode or these episodes dependent upon his self-interest in his own job. And I don't just mean in terms of getting the job he wants, which of course isn't really to be captain, but just like defending his pride, defending his own sense of self, like, like in ways that are selfish, right? In sort of his own status, right? Like uh, to what degree is the fact that Riker has a self-interest critical to his success versus Locutus who loses his self-interest, right? Picard loses his self-interest when he becomes Locutus and adopts the collective interest. Riker has a self-interest that is different from the interest of Starfleet, different from the interest of the crew in general. And it seems to me to a degree that his success might come from the existence of that self-interest, which would further play this into sort of like a capitalist communist kind of dichotomy as well but i mean what do you guys think about that yeah i mean i right that that it gives him that extra i don't know what to call it drive or edge or you know but that's in in the context of the episode pete i think that that's kind of posited as like a return to his roots as a as a rebel kind of like a you know what i mean as a sort of young brash as a young brash upstart right like a, a telling quotation from the episode is like you know captain picard basically wrote the book on starfleet so we got to throw the book out the window or out the yeah. airlock or out whatever we right. have to throw it yeah. outside yeah. I, although that, although that's interesting too, right? Because he doesn't he doesn't arrive at that conclusion himself. He needs a kick in the in the butt from from Guinan. She, she she really is the one who sort of shows up and says, "Look, you're the captain now. Deal with it." Um, and uh, so yeah, it's interesting. His it's it's it's, it's kind of funny that the bartender has to uh, has to tell the the first officer of the ship to be ambitious. <laughs> it is it is interesting then that the the leader of the large institutional structure, the person of prestige and power, right, is the person who also, in the advancement of their own interests, needs to be a rebel, right? Like, mm. like there's a there's a conflation that to me seems very of its time. Uh, right. I don't, it would be difficult today. I know, no, people still would do it. I mean, it'd be comfortable. It's very comfortable. I mean, it's time was what? 1997, uh, 1987, eight, eight, nine, nine, 90. It's summer. You're just saying numbers. You're just, no, no, no. I'm trying to, I'm I'm counting seasons of Star Trek. It would be summer. It would be 90. Yeah. It would be the summer. It was 2366, man. It was 2366. (laughs) Uh, excuse me, Pete, please give that in star date. Uh, right, it was um, yeah. It it would have been ninety nineteen ninety, so mm. like the the middle of the Bush years, uh, slightly pre Iraq War One. Right, so like pre Clinton, we're not quite at like uh, the the saxophone playing president, but we're getting there. Mm. Uh, well, yeah, we're getting rest- a little right. We're getting a little. We're getting a little restless with our sort of like Yale educated, you know. Um, We'll replace him with a different Yale educator. <laughs> Great. And then a Harvard educator, just for a change of pace. Um, but yeah, no, it is interesting. I mean, it is, it is a way of... Oh, come on, Pete, the grad schools don't count. 
<laughs> but it is a way of of kind of like defending a def, defending a a, uh, a sort of dominating figure, defending sort of an I guess what an aristocrat even like what we even use the word for this like defending defending a, a, a ruling class in a in a sort of egalitarian system, right? Is that like well if the ruling class is a rebel. <laughs> And rebels against themselves, then it's better for everybody. Well, might uh, it, oh, so, well, just I, I was just thinking that might this also not? I mean, maybe this is silly, but it, it might it also not harken back to sort of Star Trek's roots as this space western? I mean, westerns are, are dramas in which a rebel often is the hero. So maybe they sort of want to have it both ways. A rebel, but he's still within sort of yeah. military. Power I, mean, I guess the issue here is that I, it's more on me, which is that sort of I'm having trouble articulating where the dialectic here is being played out because it doesn't match up with the ways that I generally think about these sorts of power balances. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe just because of the experiences of what these sort of situations play out like in the real world. But you know, like who is who is Shelby? Really, this is the who is Shelby question. You know, is Shelby is Shelby as is Shelby also a rebel? She is right. She she goes on the away team without permission. Um, you know, she she makes a lot of bold, brash moves. Um, but she also is sort of seen as as yeah, the outside. She, you're right, exactly. Shelby Shelby's sort of a technocrat, right? Like she's she's uh, she thinks she knows better, you know. Not and, and she's not like bucking authority. She wants to supersede the existing authority with her own. That is to say, she's not a she's not she's not trying to undermine the authoritarian structure of Starfleet. She just thinks that she should be in charge instead of the other the other people, which is a different sort of rebellion, right? Than like uh, than uh, what a uh, the, the, than a kind of nineteen sixties esque rebellion, right? Where we're but that's ultimate. To- ultimate, ultimately, what Riker does too, right? Is he rebels just enough to maintain his position? Well, and they do make a lot of references to how. Shelby reminds everyone of young Riker. Yeah, I mean that's a, I mean that's an interesting thing. I mean you're talking Pete about about Shelby not being sexualized, uh, and and she isn't in large part, it, it, you know, largely due to her unfortunate hairstyle. But the <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, but the um, which you know I'm, that's not from me. Uh, by the, the way, the, right? Yeah, that's that's from the the DVD or the Blu-ray collateral where it's you know uh, where Elizabeth Dennehy talks about uh, daughter of Brian Dennehy, which I did not know that was. You know, that was yeah. something that I learned, uh, like acting royalty in her blood, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, she was unhappy with that. She was unhappy with the way the hairstyle looked because she thought it was stodgy, this sort of updo um, that she had that was very difficult, apparently, to spray into submission uh, every, you know, for each of the, what, 20 shooting days that she was working on uh, Next Generation. Um, but uh yeah, the, when she is introduced, right, she comes in the room with like old Grandpa Admiral, who's uh, who's loaning her out to the uh, to the Enterprise to help deal with the Borg problem, right? And uh, Picard Picard kind of smirks and says, "You seem quite taken with her." And uh, and the Admiral says, "Oh, it's an old man's fantasy. That's you know, that's all." <laughs> um, There's a chorus of giggles from the audience in the theater. Where that, I was, yep. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Here, Lord. yeah, here too. Oh, that. And uh, yeah, <laughs> and mine, and mine also. Uh, awkward giggles, right? Like not awkward, like yes. that was yeah, yeah. Not like that was funny giggles. Is in that would not pass muster, right? In the era of what the Good Wife and in in like a post Buffy the Vampire Slayer world. You know what I mean? Much and, less the 24th century. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So, um, you know, so like she is, uh, she's, she's, uh, 
desirable. Like it's set up that she is desirable, but the things that are desirable about her um, are right are are her competence. That is to say, what he says is is. Um, She's whipped us into shape, right? Like she's cut through red tape and bu- and bureaucracy. She sort of she sort of blazes a, a path across the entrenched uh, bureaucracy of Starfleet, and you know gets us done. Um, and like that is her, you know, that is her her principal virtue. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but not today. <laughs> All right, maybe we should maybe we should call that a podcast. Uh because we've run a little long anyway. But um goodness, we're gonna we're gonna keep talking about this. So if you wanna talk about uh if you want to talk about the Star Trek universe, about best of both worlds part one or two, about uh the Fathom events, uh or the um Bowls of bees. <laughs> bowls. bowls full of bees. History. I never said the difference between a history bowl and history bee. Uh, we'll, save that. Next <laughs> yeah, we'll save that. We'll save that. Uh, we'll save that for the outtakes. Um, if you want to, to join the conversation, and you know, there's only going to be more Star Trek because in a couple of weeks, there's uh, we're, we're going to trek into darkness. Uh, and that's that's going to be fun for everybody. So, uh, you know, if you want to do that, you can uh, email podcastoverthinking.com. You can call or text 203-285-6401. Or uh, you can do what everybody else does and leave a comment on the show notes for this episode on the website. It remains only to thank our honored guest, uh, Benjamin Krinsky. Thank you very much. We are thank honored. you so much for having me to have you uh, and uh, the panel of overthinkers and to tell you that, that we will be back next week. Until then, you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. Leap. So a history bowl is a team competition between two groups of kids. A history B or any B is an individual competition among multiple individuals who are all trying to buzz in and answer the question at the same Back to the original 35 millimeter film elements and have basically <laughs> remade the show from scratch with all new visual effects, uh, cutting it all together. And if you... If you torrent the the special features from the earlier, don't DVDs. you dare! <laughs> ow! 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 Guys! Ow! I think I just separated my saucer section. Ah. <laughs> <laughs>